Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, good morning, friends. As it is each Sunday, it is a joy to be with you all here in worship. And if you are a guest with us, we are grateful that you have joined us on this morning. And if you are a guest with us, it may be helpful for you to know that here at Eastside, we are coming to the close of a three-year preaching journey. We have been walking through what is known as the Revised Common Lectionary. And the lectionary is a three-year cycle of readings from the Old and the New Testaments. And three years ago, at the beginning of Advent, we set out on this journey, this commitment to walk through these readings together on Sunday mornings. And across our globe and across tradition, priest, traditions, priests and pastors, they will sync up their congregations from time to time with these readings. And there's something profound about churches across our world, reading the same text of Scripture together, preaching from the same lectionary readings. And for the last couple of months, we have been kind of finishing up this journey together by zeroing in on the Gospel readings, which in year three happen to come from the Gospel of Luke. And these last several readings from Luke's Gospel, and this morning being absolutely no exception to this, are are intense readings, and as you will see in a minute, this morning's reading is a something of an apocalyptic, prophetic word from Jesus about the state of our world and what he expresses to his disciples that they might expect on the other side of his death and of his resurrection. This morning's reading comes at kind of an interesting time um, in Jesus' ministry. He is The context of it is at the temple. He's doing ministry. He's preaching to crowds there in that context. And the story that comes directly before our reading is the story of the widow's might, where Jesus and his followers observe this widow offering the last of her two coins to the temple coffers in an act of worship and devotion that Jesus says far outweighs the actions of those wealthy who give out of their excess. This woman has given in devotion to God the last of her resources. And then comes this morning's reading. So friends, without further introduction, I invite you to stand as you're able in body or in spirit. As I read from Luke chapter 1, I invite you to listen for the word of God. We'll be beginning in verse 5. Luke writes, When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be, and what will be the sign that this is about to take place? Jesus said, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. 
There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues. There will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all of this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. For I'll give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But not one hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Here ends the reading of the word, the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Steadfast God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, God who was, God who will be, in this time, in these moments, I ask that you would break into our present, that you might take these words that I have prepared and make them be for your people, and this time your word. God, may you speak through them and were necessary in spite of me. And God, I ask that as I preach, the meditations of all of our hearts would indeed be collectively pleasing in your sight. The words of my mouth would be good and right and pleasing. And that all of this, God, would be a joyful expression of our love and our devotion to you. That we might hear what we need to hear, God, so that we might be changed in the way we need to be changed, so that we might be the people you are calling us to be. I pray all this in Christ's name. And everyone said... Amen. Friends, you may be seated. As you look around in this room, you can see these walls, you can see physical space, you see structure, and it's not been said by more than a few, it has been said by more than a few of us, if these walls could talk, there would be stories to be told. Every place Elizabeth and, I, Elizabeth and I have lived throughout the years, each structure in which we have resided holds its own sort of special and unique place in our hearts and in our lives and our memories. Physical spaces, they do, they, they, they have these unique places in our experiences as human beings. Our first apartment in our hometown, the first place we lived after getting married, those early memories of figuring out where we were going to put all of these wedding gifts in this tiny kitchen, realizing we asked for way too much things that we would never use. That espresso maker, I think we tried to use it once, and then it sat underneath our cupboard for the rest of our time in that apartment. Our first place in Atlanta after we moved down here to go to seminary, we arrived on one of the hottest days of the year. It was 103 degrees outside in August. And the semi couldn't fit down the lane to get to the carriage house in the back. So we had to carry everything down this long, winding lane. I think I drank two gallons of water that day. This carriage house, who the landlords were this British couple, this older British couple. And they loved to tell us how, how incredibly superior Great Britain was to the United States. 
and how awful Atlanta was at every opportunity that they had. And while we cherished our time in that little carriage house, we also came to realize very quickly uh, this euphemism they use in the South called palmetto bugs. We call them ro roaches in the North. Our second home in Atlanta, not far from our first, is where our first son was born, and we had all these memories of those early days of not sleeping when the baby is crying and feeding and dirty diapers and all the things that come with that first child that you don't think you're going to survive. And then our third home in Atlanta, just down the street actually from where we live now, it holds the precious memories of the addition of our second son, that season where we were sure we were not going to survive. And the home we live in now, we've lived longer than any other place in our married lives. And it's actually, my wife has never lived in any single house longer than she's lived in our current home. They moved around a lot when she was a child, and we moved around a lot when we were first married. But that place where we've had our first girl, our third child, this place where we've learned the routines of evening homework, all the joys and struggles of our first home, of owning our own home, doing our own maintenance, having the water heater go out, having the HVAC die on the coldest night of the year. So many memories, so many sacred, unique, wonderful memories, so many challenging things. But it's true, these humanly constructed spaces, they do, they have a capacity to contain the sacred, What's true for our homes can also be true for these sacred spaces of worship, right? I can still remember like it was yesterday back in the early spring of 2014 when the people of Eastside Church at that time, they packed up their church's belongings and a group of movers loaded these belongings into a giant semi. We cleaned out a storefront space that we had started this church in. And we had baptized many babies in. We'd held a wedding there and a funeral there. It's a place where the church was birthed, and now it was time to move. And we packed up and loaded our belongings. And what was this space that we had made a home and had enlivened and have so many special, precious memories in, I baptized my middle child in that space. But there was a time to move out. And God had something next and something new. If you've ever moved from a special place to a new place that you made special, then you know what I'm talking about. Worship spaces, spaces, spaces where we eat, we sing, we celebrate the Eucharist, where we baptize, where we pray, tables around where we study scripture and maybe argue about scripture or theology. Spaces of worship can have profound memories where the divine intersects with our humanity, where we intersect and meet God. God can use humanly constructed spaces to meet us and to do beautiful and powerful and profound work. The subject of our reading this morning, it begins with a sacred space. It begins with a humanly constructed space of worship called the temple. And the temple was the place of all places for the ancient Jewish people. This humanly constructed space, but this place where the divine would meet humanity. Where God and human beings would come together. 
the temple was so important because it was where they understood they were to find God. Now, if you're familiar with ancient first century Judaism, then you know that this wasn't the first temple. This was the second temple. What was known as the first temple or Solomon's temple, it had been raised hundreds and hundreds of years ago by the superpowers of the day. They had come in and pummeled Jerusalem and they had taken the upper crust of their society off into exile. And while those people were off into exile, a second temple was eventually rebuilt. And word traveled to the exiles that there was a new temple being rebuilt and there was all this hope that had been garnished for those who were still in exile that they were going to return home to this new, glorious, rebuilt temple. But we're told that when they finally return, when they're finally allowed to leave exile and come home to Jerusalem and they lay eyes on the temple, they wail, they weep, because they are so underwhelmed by this second temple construction, by these new walls that are to contain the divine presence for them where they are to meet God. They had built up this hope, this expectation about what was to be, and it met with great weeping and sadness. Maybe some of you in this room have had this experience in life where you've built up some dimension of your future, what your life was going to look like, how the next season was going to turn out, how things were supposed to be. You were in this season of potential hope. Maybe things are bad right now, but things are going to get better. And maybe you have some evidence, some reason to believe that is the case. And then that next season comes, and that hope comes short of what you believed was to be around the corner. Maybe it was cut short by an unexpected illness, a job loss, financial trauma, vocational change. Hope lost. The exiles dreamt of a glorious new temple. This fresh space where the divine and the human would coalesce in this new and beautiful way. And instead, the second temple, we're told, paled in comparison to the glory of Solomon's first. And the people wept. And they wept because this was so much more than just a building for them. It was where Yahweh was to dwell, to meet them. It was the thinnest place on this planet. It was the place where they believed heaven and earth would come together, the apex of the divine and the human interchange. In ancient Jewish imagination, the temple was the most potent place on earth where one could count on discovering the presence of Israel's God every time without fail. Even if they didn't feel it experientially, they knew it rationally that God was there. They would encounter the divine. What's interesting is that by the time you reach this morning's reading, where Jesus is standing in the temple courtyards teaching the crowds, the second temple had actually undergone a dramatic transformation. This temple that Jesus is speaking in front of is no longer the temple of the weeping exilic elders who had returned. Historians tell us that the Jewish people's pseudo-King Herod, that he had poured immense amounts of money into the temple. Money from taxation, money from the temple coffers themselves, most likely, to renovate, to, 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 
to create a recapitulation of what once was when Solomon was king and the first temple was built. Herod had this great goal to make this the Jewish people's most ornate temple in history, to make it a wonder of the world. And it had. It had become this magnificent space where the Jewish people from all over the land would come to worship and have an encounter with the divine. And it's in that context that Jesus, right before actually the narrative of his crucifixion begins and his trial, he makes the claim that not one stone of this temple is going to be left unturned. He says that this glorious, transformed, renovated place of worship that King Herod has poured this copious amount of Jewish wealth into, he said it too is going to be raised. And not a single stone of it will be left unturned. Here Jesus predicts the Jewish revolt. It's going to begin a few generations later in the year 66 of the first century. The Jewish people would revolt against Rome. And Rome would respond with crushing military action that would destroy most of the holy city. And that indeed destroyed the second temple. No stone was left unturned. Which again brings us back and brings them back to the age-old question, if God is found in the temple and the temple has been raised, where is God? For the Jews, the presence of the divine was mediated through the temple. And after Rome crushed the second temple, the people are left to ask, where is the divine presence? We know God through these encounters that we would have through our sacred festivals, our feasts, Saturday prayer, ritual, tradition, and it has been leveled. What do we do now? The people in Jesus' presence probably immediately were feeling some sense of existential questioning rising in their chest, asking this very obvious question of this man. So when is this going to happen, and how are we going to know it's coming? And Jesus responds to these questions from the crowd with, honestly, what's kind of a cryptic way of answering the question. He says that lots of people are going to come and say that they are the sign, that they are the, the one who is coming, that they are the signifier that the end of the world is here. And Jesus says, be careful who you believe. Be careful who you believe. And Jesus doesn't really end up giving them a straight answer to when the temple is going to be raised and when these things are going to happen. He kind of makes these broader statements about reality. He doesn't give them any specifics. In fact, what Jesus goes on to say is that these realities are going to be a play that, if we're really honest, are really normal parts of our human experience on this planet. What does he say? He says there's going to be wars. Big news, Jesus. There's been wars forever. He says there's going to be plagues. Right. There's plagues now, Jesus. There's going to be famine. There's going to be earthquake. There's going to be all of these things. And we read those things in our modern, kind of comfortable situation And we see these as like he's making these huge predictive things that are going to happen, but they were already happening. 
War was incredibly common in that day and age and culture. Jesus wasn't saying anything particularly revolutionary. So what is he getting at? I think he begins to tip his hat to where he's going with this point when he says, what comes after, his, after the temple? It's what he says to his followers. They will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. So he goes from this question about the temple to saying many will come and claim that they are the signifiers that the end is coming. Then he speaks of wars and of famines. Then he says, before all of that, you, my followers, are going to be brought before judges and trials and the synagogues, and they're going to put you in front, and they're going to question you. And all I would say to you, friends, is to wait for me to give you the words. It's almost as though Jesus is taking the mediated presence of the divine and offering it to his followers in their lived ministry. That in those moments of lived ministry, human to human, the divine will intersect with those who are seeking to be faithful. The temple will go away, but God will not. The presence of the divine will not leave. It will still be ever-present, and it will be there and available to meet you, the followers of the Christ, in the most challenging of moments. In the most uncomfortable of situations, on trial, being asked questions about your life following the Christ, and in those moments, Jesus tells his followers that they will have the words to say. Jesus, what happens after temple? God will be found in the life and the ministry, the active life and ministry of God's faithful at work on the ground. What happens after temple? God will be found where God wants to be found. God will be found where those are searching for the divine. God will be present wherever God is present. The divine will be shown in the midst of Jesus' followers. See, friends, homes, churches, houses of worship, these can be sacred places, sacred spaces. These are places for many, for hopefully most of us that have rich memories. Our homes, places where our children learn to walk, where we have family meals. Our churches, where the Eucharist has been celebrated, where songs have been sung, where the presence of God has been known. Our our literal homes where we sleep at night. Our houses of worship where we meet on Sunday morning and throughout the week. Our special places. And the second temple that ultimately was raised was a special place for the ancient Jewish people. But at some point, friends, we're all going to be asked the question, or we are going to have to ask the question, what happens after temple? Where is that new mediated presence of the divine in our lives? 
for many in this community because Atlanta is such a transient place. I get these emails from people who have moved away and they would say things like, we're still looking. And what I really need to say to them is you're not going to find Eastside in another city because Eastside is this people, these people in this time, in this place. You can't replace this family. But the life-giving, mediating, ever-present reality of God can be found in a family in another city, the same God you found here. Just like you can take your family with you from that home and take those memories with you into a new home, into a new space where you break bread together. These realities happen within our lives, within our faith communities, within our buildings. What happens after temple? Where is God now? God would dwell in the Christ. God would dwell in and with God's people wherever they gathered. The scriptures say where two or more are gathered in the name of Christ, God is found. Because friends in Christ, we encounter a God who will not be contained within any human-made container. It doesn't mean God can't show up in a human-made container. God can and God does, but God is not limited to the temple or to wherever or to whatever convention we want to put God in. And I don't care if you're talking about a physical structure. I don't care if you're talking about a religious structure or a denomination. The presence of God will not be forcibly mediated by any sort of human configuration or structure because God is free, my friends. Amen? And here's the thing. In the text, it's such a dark text, so much of it is. But Jesus is saying, regardless of temple here, temple there, guess what? Famines, wars, earthquakes, human calamity. They're not going anywhere. They're going to be here. What does that mean? It means that you all are going to need each other like you've always needed each other. It means that these gathered bodies are going to be just as necessary as they've ever been. It may not be the same configuration. It might not look the same way. It might not meet in the temple. But y'all aren't going to stop needing each other because the temple's raised. Y'all still have to be human together. And here's the thing. The divine will be met in the mediation in the relationship between human beings and church. The church can, make, can be found in so many forms, in so many evolutions, in so many ways. The Spirit of God is free, and the resurrection movement of the Christ is stubborn, and it just keeps moving on. And for the last 2,000 years, if we count up the earthquakes and the famines and the wars and the calamities, and friends, we are still here in Atlanta, the 21st century. We're here. You're here. And that's remarkable. And you keep showing up. And this movement continues to live on. And there's all kinds of anxiety about the church and, and our own tribe, what's going to happen here, what's going to happen there, how things are going to... And I wonder if, if you had Jesus up at this pulpit, he would say something to the effect of, well, what I'll tell you is this. Be careful who shows up and says they have all the answers. Be very careful. 
And regardless of how it all shakes out, you're still going to have wars and calamities and famines, and you all are still going to need each other. You need to figure that out. Whatever configuration that needs to be. And I love the image, and it continued to come to me as I was reflecting on this text, and I'll end with this. I love the image of my kids making sandcastles on St. Simon's Island as the tide is coming in. They make this big, beautiful sandcastle, right? And I tell them over and over, don't build it too close to the shore because tide's coming in. And you're going to spend all this time building this sandcastle, and then the water's going to wash it away. And inevitably, it happens every time the water washes the sandcastle away. And then the next day, they have to show up and start all over again, right? The question, I think, that we have to ask ourselves is not necessarily what container are we building, as much as it is, who are we building it with, and are we willing to get up and build it again tomorrow? in whatever configuration God is calling it to be. Because the divine is free, the divine is living, the divine is active, and the divine is always looking for active participants. And I think Jesus is reminding us that we need each other. Amen? Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.